The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible with you, you can take it out now. We're going to be in Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you there that you can take out and join with us in looking at Scripture. Our goal and our focus this year, uh, we're preaching, is to get through Ephesians together with some little breaks here and there. We'll probably look at the book of Jonah as well later in the year and some of the Psalms in the summer. But our main focus is going to be on Ephesians, and we get to start that this morning. I'm looking forward to it. Ephesians really is a, a beautiful book, uh, really tons of great truths, a lot of wonder in it. It is interesting, though, when you approach a, a new book of the Bible and you start to study it and you look in different commentaries and you, you, know, you read on it, everybody uh, says the same thing. This might be the most important book in the Bible. Every, I mean, every single one. You can go to Habakkuk, wherever. I mean, wherever you want. These ones that are, and that's, that's always what's said. And, oh, it's often neglected, but it shouldn't be. It should be looked at. And so you can say that really with all the books of the Bible, but Ephesians really is uh, beautiful and, and wonderful. John McKay, he was the president of uh, Princeton Theological Seminary in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and a little bit into the 60s. He explained Ephesians this way, which really was a beautiful way to put it. He said, this letter is pure music. What we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. That really is a beautiful way to think about this book as we look at it together and we see the truths of it. Ephesians really is important because what it does is that it, it explains for us the very simple terms of the gospel. And so really what we're going to see as we go through this is what has God done, but also what is he doing? What is he, what is he doing now? And it's interesting, I, I've come across people at times, and I'm not a part of these churches, so I don't really know fully what they mean, but they'll say things like, our pastor only preaches evangelistic messages, and I, I'm tired of that. I, I, want to know, I want to know deeper things. I want him to dive in more and more and more. And I think maybe I understand what they're saying, but there is a little misunderstanding there. The deepest truth that we really can know in all of Scripture is the gospel, and understanding the gospel and getting a grasp of it. Because to be quite honest with you, most Christians that I come across who I think, man, they have some work to do, oftentimes it is they don't really understand the gospel. They love to talk about angels. They love to talk about the book of Revelation and talk about numbers and all these different things and formulas and when might Christ might come back. And they like to talk about all these different things. Maybe Israel getting all these then good, good discussions, good things to talk about. But when you start to dig a little deeper into their life, sometimes it starts to become very obvious. You know a lot of stuff about the Bible, but I don't know if you know what grace is. I don't know if you really know what it means that Christ came in perfection, died and bled and rose again for sinners. And that really is an important thing for us to hold on to because Scripture tells us when we understand the gospel and when God saves us by his grace, he, 
he changes us and works then within us through the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us then to serve him daily in our lives on a regular basis. And that's really important. It's really important for us. And so when thinking about which books of the Bible should we look at, you know, what should we focus on? To be honest, Ephesians wasn't my first choice because the first book that we looked at together was Galatians. And Galatians really explains the gospel, talks a lot about grace and what is grace. And Paul has to deal with Judaizers and them coming in and saying, well, if you really want to be a Christian, you should be circumcised and you need to follow these few rules of Moses. And Paul is saying, no, that's not true. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And so we already kind of saw that together in Galatians, but I feel the need to pound it home more. And so you might leave and say, gosh, all our pastor does is talk about grace. That's a good thing, I think, for me to have on my head. And so feel free to pass that word around, okay, to all people. Uh, That's really my goal here. But all we're going to look at today really is the first two verses, and then I want us to see kind of a summary of the book of Ephesians as well uh, together. And so we're going to be reading in some different places. But look at the first two verses of Ephesians 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we'll break this down just a little bit. Paul has his name here as the author, and he says an apostle of Christ Jesus. We've talked a lot about Paul recently because last month uh, we were in part of Corinthians, which Paul wrote, and so we understand some things about Paul, and he says here again, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and you'll remember that Paul routinely felt the need to defend himself as an apostle because churches, uh, false teachers were coming into churches and saying these false things about him. That actually isn't the case here in Ephesians. We, don't, we do not see that uh, anywhere. The people that he's writing to aren't questioning if he is an apostle or not. But again, he's just pointing out, because this will come up later in the book, of how I am an apostle. And he's saying that, saying, I have been sent out by God with a special task. That's what it is as an apostle. I've been sent out by God with a very particular task that God has put on to me. And that's what Paul is letting people know. And the the particular task that Paul has is he's been called out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He has been called to this. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This was the task that the Lord himself put on Paul to go and do. And this was not an easy task because Paul hated the Gentiles. He didn't like them. That's why why Paul would say, right, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, because of no desire in his heart at all was there to go to the Gentiles, the dirty nasty, foreign Gentiles. There was no desire in his heart to do that. But we know that God changed his heart and then God put this task on him. We've talked some about this in in, uh, prior messages, but the salvation of Paul was pretty miraculous. In Acts chapter 9, we see it. Acts 9, verse 4 through 6, it says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, this this is Paul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And so Paul was on his way to kill Christians, and he has an encounter with the Lord. So then later in Acts chapter 9, verse 13 through 16, it says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, speaking of Paul, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. It says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, catch this, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so to think that Paul would take this task and think, oh, look how awesome I am. Actually, this is a task that none of us want to hear, really. Hey, I got something for you. You know those people you hate? Yeah, they're your job now. Go share the gospel with them. And by the way, you're going to suffer a ton. Have fun, right? Go, go. And I'm so excited. I can't wait to start this ministry. It's going to be great. This is the task that Paul really was given. But we don't see Paul sulk about it. We don't see Paul angry about it. Instead, we actually see Paul overjoyed. Why? Because God had changed him, had completely changed him, had saved him by his grace. And so God now calls Paul out of the darkness that, was, that he was living in and has a very specific purpose for him. And so as we'll see actually in the book of Ephesians, this story of Paul's salvation isn't really an odd one. It actually is a very common one because this is what God continues to do. God continues this day to reach out and to save those who are running from him. He continues to reach out and save the people who in their life really have no desire for it. Now, they might not be riding a horse to some town to kill a bunch of Christians and God strikes them down dead. I'm not saying in that way. What I'm saying is as you look around, your family, your friends who don't know the Lord, how many of them are actively searching for him? I would dare say probably none of them. None of them. But God yet still in his grace and in his might save those who don't actively search him out because he is searching them out. And in one of the things about Paul that maybe some of us need to think about very deeply in our own hearts and maybe with some friends and some family, Paul actually thought he was on the side of God. He, he thought he was actually doing the work that God would have him do and trying to kill these Christians because he believed them to be a false sect of, of the Jews. And so they wanted them annihilated. And so Paul actually thought himself to be very righteous, to be a person that God actually would esteem and pour blessings on and heap blessings on. But what he found out very quickly is that wasn't the case. He was going about it in his own way. He was doing it separate from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it took a great encounter for him to realize that. And God changed that in his life. So it's not about religion. It's not about any of these things. Because if that was the case, Paul would say, I'm number one. It's about being touched and saved by the grace of God through Christ. And we see this happening with Paul. So Paul says, I, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. We can talk a moment about the town of Ephesus. Actually, if you turn in your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me if you want. In Acts chapter 19, it's, it's really helpful background. 
Uh, I thought about reading the whole chapter. I don't, I don't think I'm going to, uh, though, just due to time. But I would encourage you to read Acts chapter 19, actually a little bit of 18, and then all of 19 is Paul in Ephesus. <clears throat> and Paul actually spends two years in this town of Ephesus. And so it's a town that he's familiar with. It's a town he's acquainted with. And you can see what happened when he was in Ephesus. The Lord actually worked a lot of good things uh, in Paul's ministry where people were coming to know the Lord. The church was being built. Miracles were actually being done. Actually, there were such great miracles being done that people were taking clothes or napkins or these different things that Paul would touch and they would give them to people and they would be healed. I mean, God, I mean, God was really just doing a work in Ephesus through Paul and through his ministry. But you will see if you read there that a problem came up because all of a sudden it was impacting the economy. There was a great temple in Ephesus uh, to Artemis or Diana, either one, whichever one you want to say. And there, it was actually one of the seven wonders of the world, the early world, was built there in Ephesus. And people would go and they would, they would worship here. And, and they would build these little statues of the, of the goddess that they were going to worship. And what had happened is so many people were being converted that there was a dent in the sails of the false gods to where there was a problem. And so the makers of the false gods would go to the people in power and say, hey, we have a problem here. There, there's a guy named Paul, and he's, he's causing a lot of issues. Something needs to be done. And so they would come and there actually would be a riot in Ephesus and they would gather some of the Christians and they would go to the theater that was there and the theater would hold roughly 25,000 people. Some people said as high as 50,000 people. Uh, so a lot of people would go in there and they would be angry at what was happening and they were uh, cursing and all of these different things. But go ahead and look in uh, verse, verse 21 there It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had silver shrines of, Artem of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you, have, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that, may, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristotus and Macedonians, who were, with, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Assyrians, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, notice this, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 
Quite a scene. I mean, quite a scene. They gathered some of these Christians. Paul, Paul kind of wants in there. People won't let Paul in there. And this theater is just erupting for two hours saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is our God. This is who we worship. We don't want you here anymore, right? This is what is happening. This is what is going on. And if you continue reading, they end up dispersing and, and going away and nothing really happens then from there. But this is Paul's time in Ephesians. There was probably about 300,000 residents in Ephesus at this time. And for two years, Paul would preach. And it says there that he was, he was writing this to the, peop, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And so it's specifically written to the church. You might have a question, though. I don't know what your background is. Uh, but there might be a question as, what is a saint here? Uh, you know, what, what does that mean according to the Bible? You'll notice that it says, in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, in Christ Jesus. Biblically, saints are all those who have been saved by grace through Christ. If you've been saved, you're, you're a saint, right? Uh, there's nothing special beyond that. Uh, some people practice this idea of sainthood and that we achieve sainthood. And a lot of times it involves perfection, actually. It involves a miracle. That really isn't scriptural. There's nowhere in scripture what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you are in Christ, I'm, I'm talking here to the church, to the saints of the church. You are a saint if you've been saved by Christ. And he says the faithful. Paul slides that word in here, right, to the faithful in Christ. And he shows us the importance of being faithful as Christians, those who've been saved by God. And this is important. Those who've been saved by God will indeed be faithful. You, you must be sure of that. It is a work of God who allows us to be faithful all the way to death. But I don't want to separate that from the work then that we put into it because we do put work into it. It's something that we need to do, but we have to understand that it's only by the grace of God that we're able to persevere, that we're able to make it to the end, that we're able to hear, well done, your race is finished, it is over, you have persevered, you have gotten to the end. But Paul very, very specifically points this out here, right, to the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting to note because later in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, there were letters written to churches. And there is a letter actually written to this church, to the church at Ephesus in verses 1 through 7. And look what it has to say about them. It's actually sad. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So good so far. But verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you've had first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So that, that's a big thing that was put up against this church in Ephesus just, just a few decades later from this point of with Paul. Paul's saying you're faithful, this faithfulness of this church, and we see they had lost their faithfulness because they had lost their first love not too long after that. 
So it was good for Paul to be able to encourage them to be faithful, but sadly we see that at least a decent number of them kind of slid away from that faithfulness. In verse 2 there, Paul kind of opens there with a, a normal greeting that you would see, but I think it's there for a purpose. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't just filler. This isn't something that Paul just says because it looks good in, in the book. It's actually something he means. Go ahead in Ephesians there. I know I'm putting a lot of work on you guys today. I normally don't do this. Ephesians 6, at the end, it's at the end of the book. Notice how Paul ends the book. As you turn there, so the beginning he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 23 of chapter 6, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. It really is a beautiful thing to think, and Sinclair Ferguson says this in his commentary, how, how Paul bookends this book with grace and peace, and then peace and grace at the end. And it's as if he's saying, grace will lead you to peace, and peace will always rest in grace. This, I think, is why I said earlier it's so important for you to grasp grace. If I were to poll you this morning, each and every one of you who are sitting here, whether you're a member here, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, if I were to poll each of you and say, on a scale of one to 10, how much peace is in your life right now? With everything that you're going through, with everything that you're facing in your life, all the struggles, the difficulties, the good things, the blessings, peace. You say, I'm a 10. I have so much peace. I, I can't stand it. Versus a one saying, I feel like everything is in tatters. Where would you really rank yourself in there? I think maybe we'd have a, a broad thing. But what the, what the Bible promises us and what we're seeing in Ephesians is that when we understand grace and when God grabs us by that grace and saves us, what he also then gives us is a peace. But Satan wants to constantly rob us of that peace by, by pointing us to other things, by turning us away from the grace of God and that good gift of God. And he starts pointing us towards these other things that we start to focus on in this life. <clears throat> and what Paul does for us in Ephesians by bookending grace and peace and then peace and grace is reminds us as believers, if you're a believer here this morning, you should have peace in your heart spiritually as a ten. Because you know grace is real, grace is true, and grace has grasped you and holds you. Now listen, you're going through some struggles in your life, no doubt, and those things hurt, and those things are difficult, and I'm not trying to deny that. Nobody, nobody walks into a funeral home with a smile on their face. At least you shouldn't. Nobody walks into a hospital room with their loved ones sick, happy about it. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is as we understand the things of God, especially grace, we start to see the things of this world differently and we understand them differently. And that's why it's so important for us, I think, to go to this book of Ephesians, to try to grasp this more and more. Well, in kind of wrapping up this morning, I want to do just a quick outline for you of the book and hopefully put some truths in there, see some truths from it. Because a lot of times what you can do is you can take little verses and you just don't see the whole thing. And so let's try to, 
Let's try to get a grasp of the whole picture of Ephesians, and hopefully it'll help us as we move forward in the weeks ahead. There's six chapters in this book. And what's very important about the first three chapters of this book, the first three chapters is that it's all commands, basically. The word that you could use here is it's written in the indicative mood, which means, again, it means commands. The first three chapters, all you are going to see, and this is going to be a struggle for some of us who are doers. I don't know if you're a doer. I'm kind of a doer. If you're a doer, the first three chapters are going to be uncomfortable for you because it never tells us to do anything. The first three chapters of Ephesians are really nothing about us. There's one time in there it tells us to do something and it tells us to remember something, which as a doer, I struggle with already. I can barely remember anything. And all it says is just remember something. And so for the first three chapters, as Paul is writing to this church, he finds it important to not tell them to do anything, but he wants to tell them, this is what God has done for you. Sit back and get ready and listen. And if you don't grasp that, you will never understand chapters four through six. If you don't grasp what chapters one through three are telling you, four through six are going to feel like a weight that is beyond uh, lifting. Chapters four through six are going to feel so heavy for you because you'll say, as we get through it, this is impossible. I cannot do what this is telling me to do. There's just no way. Because again, in verses one through three is all indicative, what God has done. As you move to chapters four through six, it's all imperative, which is do some things. But I do want to note this. It's also still filled with things of God has done. That doesn't stop. That carries on through the whole book. But all of a sudden, as you get to chapters four, five, and six, there start to be, if this is what God has done for you, then this is how you are going to live. If God has done this, this then is how it's going to play out. This is how your life will be. This is how your relationships are going to be. So when we look at chapter one, we actually read chapter one, almost all of it, a few weeks ago when we were in Corinthians together. And it talks about being in Christ, how we are in Christ. If you look at verse three, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Now, this is for me to preach next week, not this week. But I want you to take note of what that says. If you are a saint, if you've been saved by the grace of God, you have been given every... Did you hear the word I said? I said every spiritual blessing through Christ Jesus. I say that because I've heard Christians before say, I'm waiting on this special blessing from the Lord. Whoa, whoa, No, that doesn't exist in scripture. You have been given every spiritual blessing. There is no waiting. There is no waiting. It's all been given to you. Absolutely every single thing. Why? Because you're now in Christ. And it's all given to you through Christ. That's chapter one. Chapter two, we see the truth that we are saved by grace. Verses eight through 10 really are the highlight of this chapter. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not at your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul letting these people know, again, I'm not telling you what you should do. I'm telling you what he has done for you. And you have been saved by his grace, not of your own doing, but his doing. Man, you talk about lifting a weight. You're telling me it's not about myself. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. That's what scripture is telling us. It's not about us. Then you get to chapter three. And Paul talks about this mystery of the gospel that has been revealed. And so in chapter three, again, verses eight through 10, kind of summarize a little bit of what's going on here in this chapter. He says, to me though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul talks about how he is sharing this gospel with the Gentiles, but notice who has, who's been given the power, the church. The church has been the ones who've been given the power to let the nations, the kings, and those in authorities know the mystery of God that has been revealed through Christ. That's a task that's on us. That's a task that we then have been given. We talked about that all last month. The ministry of reconciliation, letting people know, be reconciled to God. God has made peace with you. Be reconciled to him through Christ. We have the privilege of doing that and us alone have the power to do that and to see God work through that. That's why you will find nowhere in Ephesians, actually you'll find nowhere in scripture, this idea of a Christian who's not part of a church. It just, does, it just doesn't exist. It's just not there. I was having a, a text with somebody recently. They were interested in being baptized, but they're, they're not here. They're not part of the church. And I said, well, normally, normally we baptize people who are within our church, who God has saved by his grace in the church, and who are desiring to be members of the church. And the response I got back was, I don't believe, you should be bat- I don't believe pastors should use baptism to grow their church. Okay, that wasn't my intention in the text. But when I asked, well, what church are you a part of? Well, we're in between that now, right? It seemed as if there was this idea that you could be a Christian and be baptized and just go be on your own. Just go be on your own and just go do your own thing. That doesn't exist. That doesn't exist in this book. There's no lone ranger Christians out there who are supposed to be running around doing their own thing. No, we're brought together And we're given the power as the body of Christ, as the church, to go and to do the things that he then has called us to do, which we see what that is then in chapters four through six. In chapter four, Paul urges this church to be united in Christ. He has Gentiles, he has Jews, he's got people of all kinds, and he's saying, we are united in Christ. Look at at verses one through three of chapter four. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what Paul would go on to talk about in chapter four. Be willing to lay yourself down for each other. Care for each other. Be united. And he's urging that. He knows the importance of that, of unity within the body. But again, it's based on 
the truths of chapters one through three. Then you get to chapters, really some of chapter four, all the way to, to chapter five. He talks about Christian conduct and the importance of Christian conduct. And if you look at chapter five, verse 21, this really will sum a lot of it up. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I mean, if there was a phrase that every church member of MMBC could grasp onto and be perfectly, this would be the one I would choose it for all of us. Let's submit to each other. Why? Because I like you. No, actually, no. doesn't say that. Submit to you out of reverence for Christ. I love you because Christ loves you. You love me because Christ loves me. And I have to recognize that. And therefore, I submit myself to you like you submit yourself to me and then you guys do together. And Paul talks about that. And that's where then, in the rest really of the book, chapters five through the middle of six, he starts talking about relationships. Right? And then he talks about wives and husbands and parents and children and bosses, slaves and masters and all these different things, government, all these different areas that he talks about relationships. And again, it's important to remember chapters four through six, all that relationship talk, all that tough, it means nothing if you do not grasp the first three chapters. The only way we can be the people that God wants us to, God wants us to be is to understand how we've become his people and what God has done to make us his people. That's the only way that any of this is going to work. That's the only way that we can be united. That's the only way that wives and husbands can actually love each other how they are supposed to love each other. When we start to grasp the love that God has for us and how he showed it to us through his son. I mean, just to give a little picture coming up, I can never love my wife like Christ loves the church unless I really understand how much did Christ love the church? He gave himself for her and everything. And absolutely everything. There was nothing Jesus held back from the church. In fact, he gave his life. In fact, he bore its shame and its guilt. He bore its sorrow. And so now you're telling me that's how I'm, I'm supposed to love Amanda? Impossible. That's impossible. But again, that's the points of chapters one through three. It is impossible. It's impossible if I'm going to try to do that on my own. But it is possible the working of the Holy Spirit in my life through Christ and him saving me. So we see these truths. And so as we look at Ephesians together for quite a while, I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be a while. What Paul is doing is he's addressing some real problems and he is actually giving us a solution for the problems of mankind. Many philosophies and theories have been put out there over the years of what exactly is man's problem or how can we achieve happiness as mankind or as a society. It's still going on today. One of the words that you hear today that's making a, a pretty big comeback is Marxism. Have you heard that word recently? Have you heard that word? I'm not here to even preach against it or anything. That's not my point. It's just if you've heard that word, what you are hearing is a theory of how to make mankind better a theory on how to solve the problem that we have because 
everybody in the world understands there's a problem. There's a problem here. Another philosophy that I heard just this week, education. You want to solve our problems? Let's give kids more education. Let's give adults more education. Let's just make people smarter. If we can make them smarter, it really will solve the problems of the world, will it not? I mean, that's something that we hear. The Marxism thing is economical. If we just give every people an equal footing financially, it really will help everything. Everybody will be happier. Everybody will see each other as equals. A lot of problems will go away if we just do these things economically. Now, to be honest with you, if you step back and you look at these things, all right, this kind of makes sense. But there's a problem with it. There's a problem with all these philosophies. You can go all the way back to Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, and you can go to the psychological side. Today, a big, a big famous person, Jordan Peterson, a lot of people like to listen to him and follow him. He's a psychologist who's a conservative guy that a lot of people listen to. Listen, a lot of things that those people all throughout history have to say, a lot of them are good things that we can take and learn from. But the problem is, Not a single one of them ever talks about our problem. Our problem is sin. Our problem is that we are all sinners, and as a result of it, we are enemies of God, constantly trying to push against God. I'm probably going to say this wrong, but really early in Genesis, like Genesis, I don't know, 7, 8, somewhere in there, it's the Tower of Babel, pretty early in our existence, still today we struggle with this thought that we can reach God that we can build up our own empires, we can build up our own towers, our own theories, our own philosophies, and we will reach the pinnacle with God and we will look him eye to eye finally and say, look it, we are equal. But God dealt with that even then. We are not his equal. We are not creator. We are the created. And because of our sin, we have separated ourselves from the creator. And that is our problem. Because everything today is out of whack because of it. Husbands don't love their wives like they should. Wives don't love their husbands. Kids don't respect parents how they should. We toil and we work, but we don't produce like we feel we should. We have relationships with our neighbors, and they just never seem to melt just right for some reason. We have all these racial problems. We have all these socioeconomic problems. Why? It's all because of sin. It's sin. And what we will see as we go through the book of Ephesians, is we will finally see the answer. This is the answer. God has given us himself the answer. Now, society continues to push it away. People continually don't want this answer. But the answer is we have to be willing to see ourselves as sinners, to see ourselves as incapable of doing anything about it, but coming to the realization and understanding by the grace of God that God has made a way for us to receive the, problem, the answer to the problem. And his name is Jesus. And we receive that by faith through grace. That's the answer. People say that's just so simple. That's, there's, there's more to it than that. It's not. If we actually could be the Christians that God called us to be, 
If we really would understand it and live it out perfectly, which, listen, we're not going to on this earth. I'm not saying that. But if we did, if we actually all grasped the truth of Ephesians and we all took it to heart and we all lived it out perfectly, there'd be no racial problems. People wouldn't go hungry because we'd, we'd make sure everybody was eating. I'm not saying we'd all have the same amount of money or anything like that. Orphans, widows, they'd all be took care of because we'd all be living how we're supposed to. But this book tells us it's not going to be like that here. We look forward to the day it is going to be like that in glory with him. And we've been promised one day he'll come again and we'll get to experience that perfection with him in glory eternally. But when you ask the question, why approach Ephesians? Because it's the answer to all of our problems. It's the solution to absolutely everything. The gospel is the key. You can train your kids. You can educate them. You can do all these different things, but many of them still end up bad. Many of them still end up horrible. It's because that's not the answer. The answer is that God has made a way through his son Christ to have a relationship with him to solve our problem the sin problem. And so I'm looking forward to going through Ephesians together. I hope you are as well. I would encourage you to read it. It's only, it's only six chapters. It doesn't take long to read. And I'd encourage you to read it you know, numerous times throughout the week and as we do this uh, together to see the truths of it and pray and ask God to help him to have him open your eyes to this truth as we see it, to, to prick your heart, to help you see again. You say, yeah, but I've, I've been saved by grace for 50 years. You need this still. You need it. This church in no amount of time all of a sudden wasn't faithful in Revelation, remember? It doesn't take long. We still need this. So I hope you'll be praying for me as I study and prepare for Ephesians. Pray for yourself as well, that God will work in your heart through it. Let's bow together this morning. We're going to pray and then we're going to close in a song. I'm thankful that God led Paul to write this and that we can read it and learn from it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truths of your word. I thank you. I thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. God, I also thank you for how big of an impact it then has in our life, but also just then in how we live and how we view things, how we see things. It makes sense of suffering. Understanding the gospel makes sense of sickness, makes sense of death. It makes sense of why the world seems to be very chaotic, why people seem to hate each other and dislike each other for the littlest thing. It makes sense when we understand sin, when we understand the problem that's in this world. And so, God, I'm thankful that because of your love, you have made a way through your son, Jesus, for us to have peace with you, and it's through that grace. And so, God, I pray that you would reach down and save those even here who are lost, who need to know you. God, that you would help them to see the truth of your word. 
They might not understand everything fully. I don't know if I do. But God, to be grasped by your grace and to be saved by that power. So that all guilt and shame of sin is gone and so that we can stand in a relationship with you, understanding that we then bear on ourselves the righteousness of your son Jesus who lived perfectly. So that when you see me, you don't see my faults, my failures, but you see your son in perfection. Again, not of my doing, but of your doing. And so God, I pray that that would be true in people's lives who hear me speaking this morning, that you would work in their hearts and in their lives. God, as we journey through Ephesians together, as we let it saturate into us, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, help us to see those truths. Help us to praise you more and more each day as we see the glorious riches that are in it. God, thank you for your kindness to us. Help us now to praise you as we close this service. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.